Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Okay, it's January. It's 2018. It's time for a new long-form series. We are making this an annual thing, and this year, we're talking about North Korea. We'll talk about where it comes from, why it's making the news today, and what makes North Korea so unique and vexing to the outside world. We'll talk about North Korean history, culture, and ideology, and I think there's a lot that will surprise you. It's very, very easy to see North Korea as just a relic of the Cold War, as a Stalinist country that didn't really get the memo after the fall of the Berlin Wall, or similarly about instituting reforms like other countries such as China and Vietnam have. But it's more complicated than that. North Korea's ideology, politics, and its current place in the world is a unique one. You can't really talk about it in the same way as, say, the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, or other Eastern Bloc countries because it's always been an outlier, even by Eastern Bloc standards. Now, the series length. Last year when I did a series on Mussolini and Italian fascism, I naively thought that I could cover the subject matter in four episodes. I could not. There was just too much there. That series grew into 14 episodes, 15 if you count a rerun that I put in there, and this year I'm planning for the North Korea series to be of a similar length. Right now I have 12 episodes planned that I know I'm going to do, but it will almost certainly be longer than that. Uh, this series is going to span over a century's worth of history, so I am going to give it room to breathe if it needs to. This is likely going to be even longer than the Italy series that we did last year. And this week, I want to start with some basic background information. I want to talk about Korea, what it is, and why it's interesting. Now today, we think of Korea as a divided country, one of the most iconic and noticeable and talked about borders in the world is the DMZ. But Korea prior to the 20th century was a unified peninsula for a really, really long time. And I'm not going to get into how it got that way. There was a whole series of three kingdoms that fought with each other, that rose up, that, you know, became powerful and then not powerful. And it's fascinating. But this series is going to be long enough as it is, so I'm going to start in the 1390s. And that's when we see the origins of the Joseon dynasty, a long-running dynasty that would rule Korea for centuries. And the Joseon period would see some of the most significant touch points in Korean history. By the way, I realize I probably just mispronounced Joseon. I'm trying to be diligent about pronunciation, but... If you speak Korean and you're cringing right now, I sincerely apologize. Feel free to drop me a note on Facebook or Twitter about it. Anyway, significant things that the Joseon dynasty did. One of the things I find particularly fascinating was that in the first half of the 1400s, Sejong the Great ordered the creation of Hangul, the Korean script. Uh, prior to that, Korea had been using foreign characters, Chinese characters for writing, and as anyone who's ever tried to learn those characters knows, 
There are a lot of them, and they can be kind of a pain to learn. Sejong, or rather his coterie of scholars and scribes, developed a phonetic script that is, seriously, one of the most intuitive forms of writing on the planet. Hangul is really, really well designed. I taught myself to read Hangul several years ago before I vacationed in Korea. I wanted to read things like menus and street signs, and I was amazed that it wasn't that hard to do. It's like easy-to-assemble IKEA furniture, but for language. And it's way better than other designed languages like Esperanto or Labjan because people actually use it. Anyways, there's that, uh, which I find kind of cool. And the other thing that really characterized Korea under the Joseon dynasty was some pretty long periods of peace and stability. And it's easy to look at Korea and see it as a kind of political football, always getting kicked around by its more powerful neighbors like China, Japan, and sometimes Russia, a sort of East Asian version of Poland. But for most of Korea's history, it hasn't been that at all. That's relatively recent by Korean standards. Now, throughout the Joseon era, Korea was often a subject kingdom of China, but that relationship to China was pretty light. It wasn't equal, mind you. They did pay tribute to the Chinese emperor. And whenever a new Korean monarch was about to take the throne, a delegation from Korea would show up at the Chinese court and they would say, hey, we got a new guy on the throne. Is it cool if they rule? And the Chinese court would always say, yeah, sure, go for it. But it was still an international system, albeit one that's different from what we have today, where we maintain the notion that all nation-states have equal sovereignty. But for centuries, in the East Asian geopolitical system that Korea existed in, there wasn't that notion. China was acknowledged to be the center of everything, and Korea was considered subordinate to it. But also, at the same time, China pretty much let the Korean peninsula do its own thing. So much of Korea's history is peace and stability and just kind of like nice coexistence with its much, much larger, more powerful neighbor. And something that's truly remarkable is that the Yalu River, which forms the border between modern China and North Korea, has been recognized as an established border for centuries. And that's a level of like continuousness that's pretty amazing and pretty unusual. There are not a lot of international borders that are centuries old, but Korea's northern border is. And that's due to peaceful relationships with China, which is amazing. But invasions did happen every so often. For example, in the 1590s, Korea had to contend with an invasion from its eastern neighbor, Japan. And Korea rebuffed Japanese invasions, and if you're a long-time listener, you might recall the story of Admiral Yi Sun Shin and his 13 ships. That was back in episode 36. And the Korean victory over the Japanese invasion, and in particular the Battle of Myongyang, where Admiral Yi Sun Shin defeated a Japanese armada with only 13 ships, that is probably one of the great come-from-behind underdog stories of all time. And that war in the 1590s is a notable exception to Korea's long history of mostly peace. But 
after that war in the 1590s, Korea was in a bad way, and repelling the Japanese invasion had been difficult and expensive. The Joseon dynasty, soon after that, would find itself again at war with Manchurian invaders from the north, who were also, at the same time, trying to invade Korea's ally, China, which, at that point, did not go all the way up into the most northern parts of Manchuria. Those conflicts, from the north and the east, caused the Joseon dynasty to kind of get a bit more insular. And in the early 1600s, it adapted an isolationist policy, not quite as extreme as the one that Tokugawa Japan would eventually take, but one that pretty much tried to shut down influence from the outside world. And Korea gained the kind of derogatory nickname, the Hermit Kingdom. That period of relative isolation, but again, also stability, lasted for another two centuries, up until about the 1870s. At that point, Korea could not ignore the modernization that was taking place around them. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing. Their former enemy, Japan, was radically changing, and Korea thought, hey, maybe we should get in on this too. So, at the end of the 1800s, a peninsula that for a long time had been a subordinate kingdom to China upgraded itself. It upgraded itself to an independent empire that answered to no one. In 1897, the newly minted Empire of Korea stepped onto the world stage. Now, you might be surprised to hear this. You might have never heard of the quote-unquote Empire of Korea, and you're probably wondering what makes them imperial. Like, usually when one thinks of an empire, they think of a country projecting power, like Rome taking over Gaul, China taking over Manchuria and Tibet, Japan taking over the Pacific, or the British Empire taking over everything. So Korea was suddenly calling itself an empire, and you might be wondering, where are its possessions? Where are its colonies and protectorates and, you know, vassal kingdoms and subordinates? And it didn't have any. The Empire of Korea looked a lot like the old Joseon Kingdom, at least in terms of, like, land area. But the Declaration of Empire did lead to some major changes. Uh, this included internal changes, such as industrializing how they made textiles, bringing in modern steam-powered and coal-powered industry, importing educational materials from China, Japan, and Europe, and moving population centers from the countryside to the city. Also, this change at the end of the 1800s meant a lot for Korea internationally. Previously, the Chinese emperor had been the only acknowledged emperor in Korea's international zone. The Chinese emperor was on top, and everybody else was merely the king of some other lesser country. Now, though, Korea presented itself as co-equal with countries like China, Japan, and its other neighbor, Russia. They had emperors, and so did it. Also, at this point, Korea could no longer afford isolation, if only because those neighboring countries wanted to snuff out this would-be empire and downgrade it into a mere possession or colony of their own. In particular, Russia and Japan saw Korea as an important foothold on the coast of East Asia, and the 1904 Russo-Japanese War was fought in part over Korea, never mind what the Koreans thought of this. Japan won that war, and eventually 
1910, it got what it was fighting for. The Empire of Japan annexed the Korean Peninsula, and that period of imperial occupation would shape Korean politics north and south all the way up until the present. And you can't understand the current situation with North Korea without understanding its history of Japanese imperial rule. Next week, modern totalitarianism comes to the Korean Peninsula. It will stay there all the way until our time. As always, this is a listener-supported show. Thank you, all of you, who keep this show up and running. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. And we're also doing a listener survey right now. I would love to hear what you think. I have linked to the survey over on Facebook and Twitter. Just go over there, click the thing, let me know your thoughts. It'll take two minutes, and it will help make the podcast better. That's facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast to find the survey there. And I'm at Joe Streckert on Twitter. You can also find the survey as a pinned tweet over there. So please go and do that thing. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 